I'm Stephen Hunt. Welcome to the Active Performance Podcast, a podcast that gives top global managers and their teams the confidence and power of clarity to grow their international business in innovative ways. This week, ambition and aims to achieve rapid personal and organizational growth, why we need to put real ambition into our aims, particularly when things are not going well. Two business icons have been in the news recently. Both of them could have played it safe. Both chose to go after ambitious goals and were celebrated because of it. One is Bob Iger at Disney. The other is Jack Welsh, the former CEO of General Electric. Bob Iger left Disney after 14 years at the helm. He increased Disney's profit from 2.5 billion to over 10 billion. That's four times in the 14 years that he was CEO. It would have been so easy for him to sit back on Disney's huge back catalogue of classic films. Instead, his strategic insight was to realise that content was still everything. For example, Iger bought Pixar at a time when a lot of analysts said it wasn't a good idea. He bought Marvel Entertainment. This was an ambitious goal and both of them paid off nicely for Disney. Jack Welch, the former CEO of General Electric, passed away. His legacy is somewhat more controversial. Still, he achieved an ambitious goal of putting people first and that was at a time when that was not normal. So what's interesting about Bob Iger and Welch is they both set really ambitious goals at a time when both businesses faced tough challenges. I see executives and global managers every week who face this very same choice. Their function or their team is in a tight spot, the culture is slowly turning toxic, it's starting to affect the operations or the customer satisfaction, there's a dysfunctional dynamic in the group, and in this situation stronger executives have the inner power to shoot for the stars. Weaker executives shoot for an acceptable minimum. So to give you a couple of examples, one international marketing team asked me to work with them when the dysfunctional dynamics could no longer be ignored. Within 10 months, the leading executive had turned that team around, firstly into a functional team and then into a high-performing team. The team was nominated for and actually won an international award for excellence in marketing. That right there is ambition delivered. A second example is of a global sales function that was already doing well and wanted to ambitiously reach even higher goals. The global sales function had just ended a record-breaking year with sales up a massive 24%. The leading sales executive could have so easily sat back, set a few politically acceptable, in quotes, stretch goals for the next year, Instead, he used the success from the first year as a springboard to create efficiencies across global functions by bringing the sales, the operations and the manufacturing functions together to figure out how they could serve customers better. The result was a 15% rise in the sales in the second year. So the combined effect was a 42% increase in sales revenue in just two years. These ambitious successes sit in stark contrast to the mediocre aims of most managers. Mediocre managers set mediocre aims, like reducing employee turnover by a half. Why reducing employee turnover by a half? Why not cut it to zero? 
or they set a mediocre aim of increasing customer satisfaction or employee engagement by a paltry 5%, or raising efficiency by another such mild number. And as the old saying goes, only the mediocre are always at their best. In other words, if you shoot for the middle rather than shooting for the stars, you're always going to achieve it. What I'm curious about is what stops managers from shooting for the stars. In my experience, there are many factors, but the key one is vulnerability. A weak manager secretly does not want to be in a vulnerable position. The global marketing executive said at the end of the project, it was hardest on me. That's true, it was hardest on him. When it was still a dysfunctional team, he had to sit and listen to some toxic, nasty, mean, angry feedback. If you ask for feedback in that situation, you better be prepared for some discomfort. It's really not easy to sit in a room and listen to other people expressing their emotions through nasty, angry, negative feedback. This is the point where you really see the weak managers and the strong managers. Weak managers fear being vulnerable. They fear that situation. Strong managers, they don't have better answers, but they have courage. Courage isn't the absence of fear, it's recognising the personal fear and still moving towards those fears. We all have fears, nerves, anxieties, sometimes at work. To conquer those fears, we have to face them. You can't go around them, you can't go under them, and you can't go over those fears. One of my favourite sayings comes from a professor of mine who used to say, walk towards your fears, they're never as strong as they appear. And that's true. We must go into the fear, get out of our comfort zone to expand our capacity, expand our abilities. And it's actually one of the best ways to experience rapid growth. I think what weak managers don't want is they don't want the feedback which makes them vulnerable. Because we can control the feedback process up to the point where we ask for opinions. Beyond that point, we're vulnerable. Taking the first step of asking for feedback means exposing yourself to risk. And it's a risk you can't control. It's a risk that you'll get negative or nasty feedback. A surprisingly high percentage of executives do not like that. Their egos are too fragile. They will spend the monthly board meeting or team meetings dodging bullets, putting on a good show and exuding a false strength. Paradoxically, in my work, I find that once people understand the basic psychology behind vulnerability and its associated emotions, they can deal with it better and are more willing to accept risk. In essence, it helps to think of being vulnerable as an early warning signal. It's your body telling you that you're on the boundary of your personal comfort zone. And there's a simple choice. You can move back into the safety and comfort of what's known, or alternatively, you can move out of your comfort zone by pushing on through the boundary. Growth in a team and growth in organisations comes when we extend our boundaries with new experiences and new situations. That doesn't mean we always get it right, but nobody ever achieved anything without failing first. Here's a very simple example. The first time I got feedback as a coach, about 20 years ago, it took me days to process the comments. I remember being particularly uncomfortable with the comments from one manager who I respected a lot at the time. His feedback was very neutral. I was disappointed because I wanted his comments to be more positive. 
However, now, after getting feedback thousands of times, it's no longer a new experience. I'm open to the content and I never worry about the person. It's a process that's well within my comfort zone. So what is it about weak managers that they don't want to be vulnerable? In effect, they don't choose rapid growth. They choose slow growth. I think there's a simple answer and a deeper answer. The simple answer is that people confuse being vulnerable with being weak or showing incompetence. It's neither. And there's a false chain of logic behind those thoughts. The false logic is that weakness and incompetence are for losers. Business is about being a winner, not a loser. I want to be a winner, so I don't want to show any vulnerability because vulnerability is for losers. This false logic depends on a false assumption around vulnerability. Vulnerability is all about accepting or rejecting risk. It has nothing to do with strength or competence. That's the simple answer. The deeper answer is that the emotions, sadness, anger, fear, embarrassment or shame that come with the vulnerability block people. It's those emotions as they surface that block us. So a fragile ego in a manager is often a so a fragile ego in a manager is often a sign of historical fragility. That's when you've been on the boundary of your personal comfort zone again and again, but something has happened in that moment, in that experience, at an emotional level that makes you go back into your comfort zone. So let's take those emotions one by one. Sadness. If at some time you've been at the edge of your personal comfort zone, right there at that point, something happens that make you, makes you disappointed and pulls you back into your comfort zone, you of course feel sad. If that process is repeated again and again, you get conditioned to feeling sad and at worst, you feel depressed. Every time you're on the boundary, you're going to feel that sadness. In that case, it's quite logical that you do not want to experience being on the boundary. The end result is you move away, or rather you move back, from vulnerability. The second emotion is anger. It's a similar process. You've tried to break out of your comfort zone. Something has happened which made you angry, or irritated, or frustrated. You've done it again and again in a similar situation. And that repeated failure to get out of your comfort zone can lead to rage. And we've all seen it in managers. Those are the managers with, with a short fuse who lose their patience over what seems like nothing. This is uncontrolled anger on the boundary between comfort zone and getting out into the unknown. The third emotion is fear. That's repeatedly failing to get out of your comfort zone which can lead to panic, intense anxiety, and managers who choke. So we see this in, for example, sales managers or managers, executives that have to give a speech internally to a large audience. They know what to do, but the words just don't come out. They can't do it. This is choking. And it's rooted in fear that they, they experience when they're putting themselves into that new situation. The final emotions are embarrassment and shame. And in this context, I believe embarrassment and shame are similar. Repeated failures can lead to jealousy and envy at an unhealthy level.
The trick is to know our emotional state. When we know our emotional state, we stand a better chance of pushing through the boundary, in other words, of moving into the unknown, which is ultimately moving into the growth mode. And finally, I want to share one thing. There's a curious phenomenon when people see their executive or manager above them move into this unknown space. It makes them as a team and them as an organization stronger and it gives them more courage to face their own fears. A global manager who gets outside his comfort zone and does so with a specific aim achieves two things. First, he sets a clear direction. Second, he communicates that he is both decisive and confident. And that clear direction, decisive, confident, is what most people need to follow a manager. So when you see a manager leading a team or a function or a company with ambitious aims, who is willing to listen to all the feedback, you will see an exponential rise in the confidence and belief of the people below them. And that is the source of extraordinary results. I'm Stephen Hunt. Thank you for listening. Join me next time for more on how top global managers use confidence and the power of clarity to grow their business. Thank you.